My name is Lynn McPherson. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and my colleague is... Kat Walker. I'm at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy as well, and also part of the palliative care leadership team at MedStar Health in Baltimore, Washington. So the title of our presentation is Methadone and Marijuana. You know, if you throw in dexamethasone and senna, our work here is done. done. Am I right? You can fix anything with those. So what's new and what's not? So I will say most of this presentation is on methadone. So take it away, Dr. Walker. It's a little bonus marijuana at the A little end. bonus marijuana. That's right. We don't have anything to disclose, at least for the next 22 miles or 50 minutes. After 23 miles, all bets are off. That's right. Our objectives are these. You'll, we'll look at the pain society guidelines, APS guidelines, look at dosing strategies, think about indications when we switch over to marijuana, talking about medical cannabis, and then talk about the mechanism of action, all kinds of fun things. Hang tight. We've got a lot to cover. So some of the stats on methadone. The half-life is tricky, right? So methadone, we always say, okay, if you take methadone, you could teach all of the pharmacy school curriculum just using methadone. This is like a hot and sexy drug in the pharmacy land. It's got kinetics, pharmacodynamics, lots of fun things about it, which makes it really tricky and a little bit dangerous, which is how we like to roll. So the half-life can be anywhere from 10 to 150 hours. So that's a long time. And if you think on average, it's about 24 hours if you kind of can aim for that, then five half-lives later is why we think it takes about five days to get to um, steady state. And that's where we look at some of our dosing recommendations of how to titrate doses. So kind of one thing to keep in mind. So it's hard because when you think of equinogesic dosing ratios, um, in fact, we just had a conversation last night and there were three of us sitting at the table. We could probably come up with 20 different ways to dose methadone. And when you talk to everybody, everyone has kind of a little bit like, I know this is kind of what people say, but this is kind of my take on it, and this is my different angle. So I think that's a challenge in the field, too, is when everyone's doing things a little bit differently. Um, and then QTC, we'll talk about that in a little bit about how to handle that. So pharmacodynamics, when you think about pharmacodynamics for methadones, methadone, you can get a little bit of extra bang for your buck in the analgesia category. But you can have some toxicities in that camp when you think about respiratory depression and sedation. Careful, of course, as any opioid with alcohol and whatnot, but that CNS depression is a part that sometimes people look over, especially when the doses of methadone we use are sometimes fairly small. So people kind of don't think that it's adding as much as it is to the camp. So I think that's something to think about. With the QT1 reference that I like, I don't know, I think sometimes you... Um, look at the long list of meds and you think, wow, like, any, like how many are QT prolonging drugs? It's hard to sometimes find a good reference on that. Um, but there's a website called Credible Meds and that has, and it keeps a pretty good updated list of QT prolonging drugs. So that's something to kind of take away and maybe use when you're thinking about methadone to do a good check of that med list is super important. So kinetics. So pharmacodynamics is what the drug does to the body. Pharmacokinetics is what the body does to the drug, right? So absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. Um, metabolism's the big one for methadone. So when you look here and you think, okay, it's ex extensively metabolized, but then look at this, the 3A4 is the workhorse here, right? And when you look at the liver and the intestinal um, 3A4s, look at the variation you see, 30-fold variation in the liver and 11-fold variation in the intestine. That makes a big difference. So if everybody in the room got five milligrams TID of methadone, five milligrams BID, let's say, um, and then we all took con drug concentrations, we, it would be all over the board. Just based on you know, our body habits and how our enzymes are set up, uh, much less all the other variables that go into, into in fact. 
So when you think about medications that can induce um, these enzymes, you're looking at an increased effect of methadone. And when you look at medications that inhibit these enzymes, that's when you look at a reduced um, activity, and then that can be where your problems lie. So we'll talk a little bit about what that is. When induction happens, when you in, um, have an enzyme induction, that can take a couple weeks to see like what is actually going to play out. And that makes it a little bit easier to monitor. So we'll talk about that, how, what you would do with that. But you can kind of watch and wait with that and see where you're going to go. Inhibition happens a lot more quickly. So you're talking about 24 to 48 hours, and bam, you see that effect right there. So that's when you're thinking, okay, we got we to gotta stay ahead of this and maybe dose reduce pro, um, prophylactically. So here's a good way, kind of rule of thumb, to say here. So if you're taking methadone and you add an, an enzyme inhibitors on the picture, then you can reduce the dose by 25%. We were just talking about that up here. Um, and you don't have to stop it. It's not that you can't use methadone, but cut that dose back, and then at least you're kind of getting ahead of that interaction. Um, but if you're thinking about an enzyme inducer, then you can use the same methadone dose, but just kind of monitor and see if... Um, how it plays out with the patient to see if you need to adjust anything from there. Um, but that's one you can monitor a little bit more easy and follow the patient's lead. A good quick um, thing, and this is, this is your thing, and I, I take it because it makes it really quick and easy, and we love multitasking, so this is a good way to do it. Follow the three A's, so anti-infectives, when you think of um, antibiotics, antivirals, which sometimes can be plus or minus um, inducers or inhibitors, um, antifungals, so those are your anti-infectives, and then you say, are they on an antidepressant or are they on amiodarone? Those are three quick ways to ask providers or to check in on a med list to say, are, are, are we going to be in trouble here with methadone? Here's a good list of um, enzyme inhibitors and inducers. And as you can see here, those three A's cover most of this list. So when you think about inducers, you're going to monitor for with, uh, methadone withdrawal. And things like rifampicin. So look here on that list, and you can see that's at the top of the enzyme inducers list. But that can be up to double the methadone in days. Methadone concentration can almost double. So these are significant concerns. So I think you have to use common sense, though, too. Like, we, I do a lot of hospice and palliative care. And when we have a patient with thrush, we do them 80% of the time, one dose of diflucan, 150 or 200, will kick thrush. So if we have someone on methadone and we give them just one tablet of diflucan, we don't bother adjusting our methadone dose. No. But if the physician really wants to go for a week's worth, we do empirically cut back by about a third. Yeah. And then efavirenz, when you look at that and you think, okay, well, that can decrease the methadone concentration 22 to 80%. That's a big range. Mm -hmm. So it's something that you kind of have to be aware of. That's like if 22%, you might be like, well, that's a little bonus. But if it's, if it's cutting back 80%, that's a, that's a big impact. And then when that happens, especially with evaporins, that can be delayed. So four to 28 days it can take to kind of see that interaction play out, um, which is a long time to be monitoring for. You might think, oh, week's gone by. We're, we're good. We're in the so clear. I think they need to keep a good-looking pharmacist on speed dial. What do you think? I think that'd be a great idea. Awesome. Absolutely. If you stick around with us speed dating, we'll help you pick one up. That would be good. All right. So who's a good candidate for methadone? Well, I, of course, would go to the bottom bullet because I think everybody and their mother. Yes, sir. What kind of percentages uh, of the suppression do you have in the SSRIs? What kind of range? With the SSRIs, you said? Oh, um, I think by reducing by at least about a third is a safe thing to do. A third. That's a good. Yeah. And, you know, I always worry about citalopram in particular because that prolongs the QT, particularly in those higher doses like 40 milligrams. 
be careful with that. Mm -hmm. All right, so I think everybody and their mother should get methadone. I could be a little bit biased. Maybe we could just put it in public water. Um, but some <laughs> really good indications, I think, are because it's a diphenylheptane, it's not a phenanthrene like the morphine oxycodone group. So if someone truly has a morphine allergy, which is really, really rare, this is a good drug that you can switch to. Similarly, although, as, as Kat just said, it's extensively metabolized, but to inactive metabolites. So if someone has renal impairment, methadone or fentanyl are a good bet. Uh, even though the data is not exactly thick on the ground, I see so many people in end of life with advanced illness who have mixed pain pathology. So I do believe methadone gives a little more kick when you have a little neuropathic pain going on, although again, it's hard finding that data. Um, people who are having opioid-induced adverse effects, maybe a smidge less constipation, but don't get too excited. And often people use methadone as a second-line drug because their pain is refractory. Uh, certainly in my outpatient practice, I love methadone because it's very inexpensive, uh, easily accessible, very inexpensive, although obviously you have to know what you're doing with the dosing. And and again, in people with advanced illness, hospice patients, it's the only opioid that is inherently long-acting, and it comes as an oral solution. It's a concentrate, 10 milligram per mil, so you can put up to one ml, one and a half in the buccal cavity, and it works just fine. So, you know, this is certainly what we're worried about here is methadone is accounted for 1.7% of the prescriptions at 09 or 9% of the morphine equivalents, but associated with 31% of opioid alone deaths or 40% of single drug deaths. How much of this is inappropriate prescribing and monitoring and how much of this is abuse? I don't know. I would like to think it's more from the abuse, but I do think we have to be very careful. So certainly this has been one of the things that has led to the American Pain Society coming out with their guidelines for the safe and effective use of methadone, both in substance abuse recovery as well as in pain management. They published it in April of 14. They had this uh, inter interdisciplinary expert team who came up with these guidelines. Uh, so what we did as uh, with the hospice and palliative care folks is we looked at the APS guidelines and we're almost done our white paper on how to apply this to hospice and palliative care patients. So they did not have in the APS guidelines who is an inappropriate candidate, but we did on our site, so I wanted to share that with you. If somebody is very close to transferring to the eternal care unit, say within about a week they're going to be gone, we think twice about doing a full switch to methadone. But uh, increasingly we're seeing data. Another article just came out within the past month using methadone in an adjunctive role. So it's sort of mm -hmm. like springing a little fairy dust on the whole red-hot mess. So more on that in a minute. But I, if somebody's going to be gone before they would likely get to steady state, we probably are not going to do a complete switch. Any risky situation, whether it's chronic non-cancer pain or an advanced illness, if they have poor cognitive functioning, they don't have a reliable caregiver, lack of knowledgeable healthcare practitioner transfer. So Kat works in a hospital. She can't start methadone and kick them to the curb the next day if there's nobody to catch the ball. So that's really important. Yeah. Possible drug abuse. You know, you don't want a monkey with this drug. And then other risky situations as shown here. Now what about the EKG monitoring? This is from the APS guidelines. They recommend getting a baseline EKG prior to starting methadone. Certainly think about your risk factors. So I do advocate for that in advanced illness. Hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, unexplained syncope, be congenital QT prolongation, family history of any of that, and the patient having a history of QT prolongation or a history of prior ventricular arrhythmia. So they say, you know, you could consider about getting it. If you've had an EKG in the prior 12 months, that's probably okay. So what do you do with that data? They say if your QTC is between 450 and 500 milliseconds, really think twice about it. Or if there's something reversible, like, well, they were kind of were hypo hypokalemic. If you fix that, does that rectify the situation? I'm really impressed with the data showing how variable the QTC is. So I think I read one paper of they did the EKG before breakfast and then they all had went to McDonald's and had a Happy Meal and they did it afterward. It was like, wow, that was really different. So yeah. Happy Meal therapy. I'm all over that. Our first thing is 
Can we recheck it? Let's because, recheck it. Yeah. Yeah. We lean to the left as we do it. Yeah. Um, and then if it's over 500, they're like, I don't think I would go there. Uh, and then they talk about maybe considering buprenorphine for the substance abuse recovery patients. Uh, and then they recommend for follow-up, if you continue and, and stay the course and go along with methadone, well, how do you go about doing that? So recommending doing it once you get to 30 or 40 milligrams a day of methadone, certainly if you reach 100 or any new risk factors, and following the same guidance with the 450 and the 500 as shown here. Consider switching. And if the patient says, I'm not going to switch, this is the best control I've ever, ever had, certainly you need to document that. So what did we do for hospice and palliative care? Just to share this with you, uh, we kind of broke it down into what is the role of the healthcare team and what is the role of the methadone in the situation? So if the palliative care team is simply serving in a consulting role and the medicine or the oncology team is still in charge of the patient, if it's a first-line choice for analgesia, treat it just like the APS guideline said. If it's more of a second or third-line drug, we kind of just said level of vigilance is a little less. What about hospice or when palliative care is solely responsible for the patient? We said level of vigilance is less, or if it's hospice and it's a second or third-line drug, we said level of vigilance is low, which is code for don't even bother with the EKG. Don't even go there. If I, if I don't know the data, I don't have to worry about it. And I think if you're using methadone and it's an, an, either for addiction or for pain and they're in the hospital and they're not a palliative care patient, that's, that's a critical piece of information to have before you're doing any dose adjustments or making, making recommendations. And I think sometimes, you know, in the pharmacist we had in our, in our hospital, they called down and asked and said, oh, we want to switch this patient over to buprenorphine. Um, you know, we're just worried about the QT, but without asking what it was or figuring out that the patient was actually having torsades, they said, oh, well, you'll have to titrate that. The pharmacist on the drug info line said, oh, you'll have to titrate that down over a couple weeks. And then they, thankfully, they called our palliative care team and said, what do you guys think about this? Like, what do you think we should do? And then I ask a little more question saying, look, well, what is the QT and what's going on with the patient? Let's take a look at them. And you're like, this patient's having torsades. It's like, off, the methadone's off. So it's a critical piece of information I think sometimes gets overlooked as like a risk factor, mm -hmm. but you gotta dig in, especially for a non-positive patient. All right, time to put you to work. Here we have a case. BL's a 54-year-old woman with a 10-year history of low back pain. Now she's a failed back, did not respond to non-opioids. She has adverse effects to all the co-analgesics that we could think about. She's not taking any drugs that interact. She's opioid naive. She does not want a short-acting opioid because she's afraid it's going to make her goofy when it peaks. Now, of course, this, this case, our cases are not about the therapeutics. They're about the math, so hang with me here. Uh, so the PCP asks for a dosing recommendation. We'll give you 15 seconds. Talk to the person next to you and come up with an answer. That's all you have? <laughs> Comes as a 5 and a 10 milligram tablet and a 10 per 5 and a 10 per 1 solution. All right, what are you going to do? My friend from Missouri, what are you going to do? I know your answer is 2.5 milligrams twice a day. I'll probably start at 5 twice a day. Well, you are a much bigger dog than I am. So no interacting drugs. She's younger, 54. My God, she's a baby. I would probably go with the 2.5 Q12. Actually, this is the dose I usually start with, even with people who are older, uh, a little bit older, uh, because the 5 milligram tablet, I can cut it in half. And without patients, I'm reluctant to use the oral solution, but in advanced illness, that's what I like to do. I don't like, if you're going to use a rescue medication, I don't like using methadone for rescue, because then I have to worry about that accumulating as well. What if they are 89 years old? Holy moly. Well, if they're an older patient, they're opioid naive. This guy, I like to call him Fred. 89, he was admitted to hospice with a diagnosis of failure to try, thrive, campaign of uh, aches and pains, ambulatory, a little bit frail, history of bleeding ulcer, PCP said, I don't want to use an NSAID, um, didn't really, acetaminophen didn't really bring much to the table, let's, let's go with methadone, no interactions, what are you going to do? To change your decision, take 10 seconds. Oh, look, he's agreeing with me. 
Oh, wow. Wow, he's going to let him lick the tablet. Wow. <laughs> what else? Maybe one of those necklaces, those candy necklaces with oh, methadone on it. Yes, like a little chomp here a and there. A couple licks, Q6, Q8. I think could be good. Methadone salt lick. Let's All right, go. so what are you going to do? So what now? What do you think? Black shirt. What do you guys think? What do you Maria, think? what do you think? So one to two and a half at bedtime? Okay, one and two. Well, I think when you're thinking here, we're with you. I mean, you don't have interactions, but as far as the elderly and frail part, that you know gets you thinking a little bit. So yeah, you can even go as low as one. Now you'd have to use a solution for this, right? Because you can't like splice in days tablets. Once you get past half a tablet, like let it go. Then you can use the solution, right? So it comes 10 per one. Just be careful when you use a solution. You don't want to use a half of anything, right? So you don't want to do a half a mil or 2.5. So stick with whole numbers here to make it easy um, for dosing. Um, and then if you wanted to do a tablet, you could still do a half a tablet um, and just try it once a day like the QHS. So yeah, that's reasonable. And then um, rescue could be similar. Yes? It the comes liquid. Oral solution. 10 milligram per 5 ml and 10 milligram per mil is the Intensol. Yeah. I love the Intensol. In hospice, that's all we They're use great. because if you need to increase the dose, you don't have to get a new product. You're ready to rock and roll. We have so many older folks in hospice who just can't settle and maybe they can't articulate about the pain. And we've tried the non opioids and mm -hmm. there's nothing really specific. And we put them on a milligram once or twice a day and it's, it's freaking magical. Yeah. Yep. Two years will be using ketamine? Oh, no, baby, I use ketamine now. Rock on. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So, yeah, so look to the solution, because that tablet, you can go even a little bit further, but don't try slicing and dicing that tablet. Not a good thing. Don't whittle it down. That's right. Okay, so what did the American Pain Society say? They did say, uh, start at low dose. So with opioid addiction, they say don't start at higher than 30 to 40. But for pain, they treat anybody up to 60 milligrams a day of oral morphine equivalent as basically an opioid-naive patient. So they say, just don't go over 7.5 milligrams a day. They also said, when you go to increase it, please wait 5 to 7 days and don't increase your total daily dose by more than about 5 milligrams. I don't understand this next sentence that they have in the guidelines. They say, when you're converting from higher than 60 milligrams, start at 75 to 90% less than the calculated equianalgesic dose, but they give you no guidance on how like, what they consider an equianalgesic dose. So I kind of don't pay attention to that line, but I do like what they say here, but don't start at more than 30 to 40 a day, regardless of how much the patient was on. And then only when you get to 30 or 40 can you increase the total daily dose by 10, but still wait five to seven days to get to where you're going. Uh, so what did we say as the hospice and palliative medicine group? We took the same thing and said up to 60 milligrams a day, treat them like they're opioid naive. And we said go anywhere from two to seven and a half a day in two to three divided doses to allow for that one milligram Q12 or the two Q12 using that oral solution. Even people who are completely obtunded, you can prop their upper body up 30 degrees, put up to one ml in the buccal cavity, and it's a beautiful thing. It kind of just hangs there and trickles down the throat. A little bit will get absorbed transmucosally. Or you can do the two and a half, two or three times a day. And again, look for your interacting drugs and reduce the dose by 25 to 30%. And we did go with the five milligram increase every five to seven days. And then comes the tricky wicket of um, conversions. What the heck? Um, so we went with this guideline. So again, we were a little fuzzy on the APS. So I've long used this, which is a modified Morley-Macon model. So we kind of squished the two together. So I've already shared with you the less than 40 to 60 milligrams, so sort of like opiate naive. We say if someone is taking between 60 and 200 of oral morphine equivalent, and they're under 65 years old, we do a 10 to 1 conversion. If somebody's on greater than 200 milligrams or they're over 65 years old, we do a 20 to 1. 
unless that number calculates to be so low, it's lower than the dose you would give if the patient was opioid naive. So use a little common sense. <laughs> also, I take exactly what the APS said. I never started higher than 30 to 40 milligrams a day. We get people refer to us in hospice all the time where I suspect the a practitioner in the community, they keep swinging, God bless them, and they, they finally say, you know, I got nothing. This patient's on 60 milligrams an hour of IV morphine. They're twitching like crazy. They have screaming allodynia. They're, they're completely delirious, and I don't know how to fix it. Every time I increase the dose, they get worse. Well, that's because it's opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So simply reducing the dose or taking away the offending agent is a good thing. So that alone is a good maneuver. You don't need to match it milligram per milligram, even at the 20 to 1 at that high dose. Um, and then again, stay the course for five to seven days. I love this diagram. It was used for, with permission, uh, and I actually show it to patients. I say, you know, methadone is not a magic bean. You are not going to be completely pain-free by this time tomorrow. It's like climbing the stairs of a staircase. It takes five to seven days to get to where you're going. Yes, it'll start to work with the first dose, but you do need to rely on your breakthrough. But you should be, and I tell them, you know, people respond when you plant suggestions in their head. You will be using less and less breakthrough each day as time goes on. So I will check in with you every single day and see how you're doing. This is from a series of cases that published by a couple of pharmacists. And I think this is really where it all started about don't go higher than 30 to 40 a day when you're converting. They looked at a series of 10 patients on anywhere from 2,000 milligrams oral morphine equivalent for patient one to 11,000 for patient number 10. And as you can see, in most cases, they started them on 10Q8. And as you see from the far right column, most of them did just fine on 10Q8, so it's surprising. You know, when you first start doing this, people think you're a little cray-cray by suggesting what seems like a low dose in some cases. Don't forget about your enzyme inhibitors and inducers. Inhibitors, I do cut back a little bit. Oops, I went too far. Uh, and then again, don't forget about the drugs that prolong the QTC. Uh, it seems like every day we wake up and we get an email saying, oh my God, guess what, tuna fish prolongs the QTC. And I think it does. And so go to that credible meds. But how, and you notice Haldol's on that list. And in hospice and palliative care, we hit that all the time because the Haldol is one of our dearest friends, um, vitamin H, right? So, but a lot of times in the hospital setting, especially in our setting, people get breakout in hives when you say, okay, we're going to add Haldol to this patient that's already on methadone or another QT prolonging drug. But the Haldol doses we use are so small. So if a patient's nauseated or delirious, we're using 0.5 BID of Haldol to just try to like chill it out a little bit. Um, but when you look at the data to support the QT prolongating effects of Haldol at those low doses, it's, the data is between 5 and 15 milligrams showed the effect of 5 milliseconds change of the QTC. So you're like, is that clinically relevant if we're using a fraction of that dose? Probably not. If we get a two millisecond change in the QTC, is that clinically relevant? Probably not. So I think when you show providers that data, it makes them feel a little bit more comfortable that low doses, you're probably okay. I like how he rolls. He said, don't worry about it. Oh. Pharmacogenetic profiling. We don't do that in hospice and palliative care. I, I don't personally think the expense is worth it at this point. Maybe in the future. I, that's just me. That's just me. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe before I die, case. all babies will get pharmacogenetic testing when they're born, and they'll put a chip in their forehead, and then we'll know forever how they roll. Wow, wow. let's get that going. You should put GPS in kids, too, don't you think? I would sign At up At least until they're 18. Maybe 21. <laughs> maybe 30. Even. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking 30. <laughs> that might be a good idea. <laughs> That's right. So, pardon? No, we don't use Reparadol, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. 
Sometimes we use on Dancitron for nausea, too. That's pretty, pretty cool, too. Yeah. So um, our next case, so get thinking about this. So our patient here, 64-year-old man, chronic low back pain. He's taking um, extended-release morphine, 60Q12. And then the oral solution of morphine, taking 20Q2, but using about two doses a day. So he's not a surgical candidate for his low back, and his physician says, let's switch him to methadone. Imagine that in this talk, switching to methadone. Um, not taking any interacting medications, so we don't have to worry about that. So of course, you're gonna do all the assessment. You find out, okay, he's nociceptive and neuropathic pain, so maybe methadone might be a good choice here. Good and plan. here's um, a little bit of a description. So sacral area, shooting down leg, numbness and left leg with prolonged standing. So you're thinking, okay, what dose are you going to pick now? Yeah, I think you should wrestle with this for a minute. Talk to your wrestle. neighbor. I think we'll give you a whole 20 seconds Don't this wrestle time. with your neighbor, but wrestle with it with your neighbor. Okay. Yeah, right. A fine distinction. That's right. <laughs> we don't want to break up any fights here. Anybody have an answer for us? Oh, look, two hands up over there. Two hands. Are, are, <laughs> you have an answer or are you just stretching? It was a good stretch, I think. Oh, our hands. I don't you're know. wearing a bright green shirt and have both arms up. Oh, dude, you're a marked this man. This is not good. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody want to take a crack? Oh, he said five BID increase every three days. What do you think about that? Okay. I got a 5Q8, but what do you think about oh, increase every three days? Uh, you're a little too wild for me, my friend. Oh. <laughs> But five TID, and you saw three times. TID increase every seven days. Every seven days. Okay. okay. Maria? Do you ever use QID to start them a little quicker and then back off? Just curious. The question was do you ever do QID and then back off? No, I don't. Sometimes if they're younger and the math works out and they're taking other drugs that are Q8, this is totally seat of the pants stuff. I mean, I have no evidence. Uh, I, I like Q12. I like Q12. Sometimes we'll do Q8. I do that sometimes in the hospital. Um, just because it's easier to get the doses in. I probably wouldn't do that for a patient at home because Q6 hour dosing is, you know, horribly hard to do. But with a nurse administering it, I think you could probably be okay because it is short acting in the beginning. So um, you, could, you could think about that in a monitored setting. So what is everyone else thinking? So we're there. So let's, let's look at what we're working with here. So see how this bumps up with what you're thinking. So the 60Q12 um, gives us 120 milligrams of morphine, and then you've got those two 20 milligram doses for 40 milligrams, and that brings us to 160 total of oral morphine. Everyone get that? And um, then you can refer to the dose and say... And don't forget, if, they were, or if this patient had been on Oxycontin and Oxycodone, you would convert that to oral morphine equivalent as you move forward. That's right. And less than 65 years old, so we can use the 10 to 1 conversion here. So then you're looking at 16 milligrams total daily dose of methadone. So 16, not that friendly of a number, but we can work with that. So you can do 8Q12, or you can do 5Q8. So a lot of you came up with 5Q8, right? How would you do the 8Q12? Liquid, right. Or you could do 7.5 with the tablets. You could do 7.5 with the tablets, absolutely. No, that's a great question. So if this patient had been on Oxycontin at 60Q12, that would be 120, which would be about 180 of morphine. I do not empirically reduce because we're changing molecules. I don't. I just rock and roll with that. Yeah, because the 10 to 1 will account for a lot of that. Yes, sir.
Yes, if the patient's on 160 of morphine, a 10 to 1 would be 16 milligrams of methadone in my world. We're a little fuzzy about what the, um, yeah, you know, that's interesting, the CDC. I'm a little fuzzy about that too. But this has worked for me for a really long time. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. Would you ever first change the extended release morphine to methadone, leave them on the liquid uh, short release uh, to help with transition? I never use methadone for breakthrough if I can help it, unless they're like truly screamingly allergic to morphine. You mean leave them on the morphine short acting? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so that's the next question. Yeah, so you think, well, what are we going to use for breakthrough, right? We're not going to use methadone. So their normal breakthrough dose would be fine. And if you didn't incorporate their breakthrough doses in, sometimes I don't do that to be conservative as well. He was only using two a day. So you could probably let that go, especially since we rounded down. We got to 16 and we rounded down to 15, or you can kind of take that off. You're kind of getting rid of the breakthrough impact anyway. So that's not, that's not a huge impact on the dosing. So that, I think that's reasonable to be conservative. Yeah, Julie. In my area, I cannot get methadone solution on the outpatient side mm -hmm. unless they're hospitalized. Wow. Good to so you want to check in your area to see what's available at the outpatient pharmacy. Yeah, so she said that she couldn't get, she can't get the, um, and you're in Arizona, so she can't get the methadone solution in her area for outpatient use. But you so, I would talk to the pharmacies in your area and find one that agrees to carry it. Oh. It's not on the distributor list. Then you need to move. Yeah. <laughs> Come to Baltimore. Come to Maryland. Yeah, Come there on. we go. There we go. Utah. OK, we've got Over some takers. There. Who wants Julie? <laughs> Over there, one question. We're coming to that. Hold that thought. OK. <laughs> We do. We, I always offer breakthrough. That's what I'm saying. So I, I tell the patient, you know, it's going to take several days to accumulate, so use your breakthrough. Don't be a little soldier. Do you know what yes. I mean? So I say, go ahead and use it. Q2, Q4, whatever it is. Q2 in hospice, Q4 in uh, chronic care, and have them keep a pain diary. And I'll say, I expect you to be using less and less each day. Absolutely. And, and sometimes with um, our patients in the hospital, we'll liberalize that breakthrough dosing similarly. So even on the floor, we'll say, okay, we're going to change it from Q4 to Q2 PRN. And then the nurses look at you like, I am not going in that room every two hours. Like, that's a lot. And you're like, just hang in there. This is not forever. We're getting them through this transition. And then everyone can get on board with that. Um, so yeah, we liberalize it and say they may need it a little bit more the next couple days. Um, so what about rapid switch or gradual? So when you think about how you would implement whatever dosing you came up with, which I'm sure you know, most of you seemed like we were in line, same line, who would consider a rapid, a rapid switch? In other words, to stop the morphine and start the methadone. Rapids, all the rapids. Who would implement this using a gradual switch? So like down on the morphine a little bit, up on the methadone a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I think there's, um, this goes back to kind of like everyone has a different way of doing it, right? That's kind of hard. So I think we have to be careful here because I think there's some, there's challenges with both. Um, we both use a rapid switch and kind of stop the morphine, go with the methadone, unless you're doing the little layering approach, mm -hmm. um, which can be a little bit of a different story. Um, but I think you just have to be careful. That, you know, there is some data saying that when you cut down the third, the third, the third, like each day, that there were increased deaths. And I think that overlapping can be a little bit of a challenge. So... I would just use some caution because once the methadone gets in there and knocks out some of that tolerance and you still have a fairly high dose of opioid on board, it can get you into trouble. Um, so just as long as they're being monitored really closely, be careful. Patients hate that side effect. Yeah. Would you use the same conversion factor vice versa when you're converting someone from methadone in the morning? 
So converting from methadone to morphine, I love that question. Um, there's <laughs> one paper studied by, published by Walker who says you multiply by 4.7. But because I'm a card-carrying weenie and I'm worried about all that dwell of still of methadone in the body, I multiply by three. Wow, that's interesting. That's yeah, I interesting. think that's an important point. So she was saying that the calculator the CDC put out um, can be problematic because right at the cu certain cut points, it can lead to a big variation in dosing. So at 20 milligrams of methadone, it would take you to 80 of morphine. But then if you jump to 25 of methadone, it would take you to 200, which clinically you would think that doesn't make any sense. Um, so I think that would be a good thing to be aware of and to just kind of get some education out there about being careful about using that. Because, I mean, anytime, I mean, we are pretty adamant against using calculators in general for opioid conversions. Um, Not calculators, the online apps. The online the apps, apps, right. Apps but I think you just have to be careful that you're thinking through this process in a clinical fashion because that is dangerous if you're putting in these numbers and it's turning out um, a number that's not clinically relevant. The one they're using. Right. That's problematic. It is. And we don't have time to discuss the merits and the pros and the cons of the CDC guidelines because we would all be here until next Saturday, wouldn't yes, we? Yes, we would. <laughs> Enough about that. We might as well talk about the presidential election while we're at it. <laughs> don't make me build a wall. Okay, we have a question on. over here. <laughs> okay. um, so, um, so then I think you're, okay, we got the conversion. We have a plan. Um, the, another big thing about this is really involving the family and saying, okay, how are we going to do this? Getting the wife on board, saying we need to really keep an eye on him. Let's keep this during while getting to steady state. Look for changes in respiration. Even things like what does that mean? Snoring, signs of other opioid arousability, um, and daily being in touch with that wife at minimum, and even laying eyes on that patient is ideal. In the hospital setting, we don't generally do methadone conversions unless I know I've got a good five days with that patient. They're staying over the weekend. We've got a good plan in place. Um, actually, it's interesting because our team is very hesitant to start methadone on Fridays, but that's my favorite day to start it because I know over the weekend they're going to rock and roll through their, they haven't gotten a steady state yet, and then I'll see them on Monday, which is day three, and then four or five, we can keep an eye on them. So um, people say, I don't want to do that before the weekend. I'm like, well, I actually think that's a pretty good time to do it as long as we know they're staying until next week. Um, and then a lot of times we'll hand off. If I know that they're going to a hospice that has a reputable pharmacist, then we can hand off and make sure that that transition goes smoothly as well. Um, so, and then letting them know what the plan is. So I think other monitoring is important. Um, in our patients, we don't particularly do urine screens or things like that, but in an outpatient or a chronic pain situation, that would be important. And then, of course, constipation. I think a lot of people forget that sometimes with methadone, um, but it's important. Here's an um, example of a monitoring form that you can use for kind of your clinical staff to help remember all of the different um, things. The RAPS acronym here, the respirations, altered mental state, pupils, snoring. It's kind of a good uh, nomogram to remember the different things to look at with each patient and to review daily. If somebody says, the dog ate my methadone, I want to see the dead body. <laughs> and God would trust all others we audit. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Um, and then here you can say, okay, this is the modified Pacera score, and I think for our world in pain and palliative care, um, the, four, the only modification is that the four, instead of giving Narcan, we stop the opioid and then contact the prescriber, because we just want to make sure that they're not giving um, naloxone to a patient who's actually exhibiting signs of act being actively dying. So methadone education, this is here for your reference, really. But these are all of the things to kind of make sure that your patients understand. What do you do if you forget a dose? When to call? What do you expect and when? And we talked about using even that graph would be important to help them know that. And then the caregiver, just to kind of review some of the things, is um, first five days, looking at their arousability. Are they snoring? Um, here's the data looking at adding methadone to another opioid. And so this is what we're talking about, the case studies, looking at cancer patients in an outpatient clinic saying, okay, let's add 2.5 BID to these patients. Their endpoint was a two-point reduction in pain. And when you look at the mean pain scores after the, the study went, um, you looked at the, they enrolled patients with a pain score of four or higher. So these are patients that were having moderate pain. Um, and the methadone was tolerated in 85% of the patients. And then when you look at the pain scores here, um, their reduction was met, their endpoint. But even when you think of a clinically significant pain score reduction is about a 30% reduction, which would be 2.3. And they actually got a 2.5 reduction. So we would kind of say in two ways they met a clinically significant endpoint uh, by just adding methadone on top of it. And it was safe and tolerated. So I think that is good information to have. And um, we, you know, we use it for tough cases. If you don't have time to make the full switch. Um, we talked about buccal, the mucosal route and using the intensol. This is just data to say um, that they switched to the oral solution for patients that couldn't swallow, and they had good success with it, and it could help support. We use that all the time. And with the lipophilic nature of it, then I think you can know that it has a little bit of absorption. It's not all GI-related, but even if it trickles down and it, absor it absorbs in the GI, we're okay with that, too. Mm -hmm. Better absorption transmucosally than uh, morphine, certainly. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so we talked a little bit about this already, but we'll move on because we're getting to... Any questions about methadone before we... Yeah. Upper limit of methadone. Ooh, well, that's a, that's a tough one. I would say 90% of our patients are less than 30 milligrams a day. The tough ones are the patients who come to our hospice and they were on um, a methadone maintenance program and they're like on 120 a day. And now they're on hospice and they're too weak to go to the methadone clinic and our doctor can't write for substance abuse. So what do we do? We take that 120 and divide it into two or three and now our doctor's writing for it for pain and those patients are tough. Those are. They're really hard. And even, I'll, I'll help you one. Um, so practicing in inner city Baltimore, we have a very interesting patient population being the heroin capital of the world, of the country. We're so Maybe proud. The world. We are proud. It's nice to be number one at something. Um, but then we have patients that come in and they're not just taking the 120, but they come in and say, oh, by the way, I don't, I don't really go to a clinic, but I buy about 200 milligrams of methadone a day and I take about 200 to keep from getting sick every day. Sometimes I'll take 250 or 300 and you're like, so then you can't even verify the dosing. Um, and those patients can be really tough. So um, those are some challenges. So can patients tolerate it? Yeah, but it's hard to verify that. It is. Way in the corner. From oral methadone to IV methadone, I cut it in half. And then when I go from IV methadone to oral methadone, I multiply by 1.3 because methadone actually is about 70 to 80% bioavailable. And there's one paper published, it's Lauren Shayabu's paper on the clinical consensus guidelines on parental methadone. If you don't have it, email me and I'll send it to you.
Some people do it as a continuous infusion with a bolus, which makes me a little nervous, and some people do it every four hours as an IV injection. Okay? Yeah. Yes. You talked about breakthroughs uh, for methadone. Any particular drug and, you know... So what do we do for breakthrough? As I said, I try not to use methadone for breakthrough because then i got to worry about that accumulating. So I like to use plain old morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone, whatever. I t look at what they were on before. And I take 10 to 15% of that, and that's what I give as breakthrough, Q2. If I'm in a tough situation where they're allergic to everything in the world and I have to use methadone, I use half of the Q8 or 12-hour dose and offer it like no more often than Q3. Yeah. But no preference yeah. for a certain opioid. Yeah, right there. Um, what's your approach to a patient from methadone? From the fentanyl patch to methadone? Take the fentanyl patch, and if they're not cachectic and wasted and scrawny, I double it, and that's your oral morphine equivalent, and then rock and roll. So the question was about, I think it's the same. The question yeah. is when to use the breakthrough. I do use it when you're titrating it because I explain to people. No, 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 no. I, the 10 to 15 percent is just a rule of thumb. Usually it ends up being something goofy like 12 and a half percent. So I take 10 percent if that's a goofy number, like six milligrams and 15 is nine, I'll either go five or 10. My favorite thing to do, since prescribers cannot write five to 10 Q2 to four because you go to jail, is to get two orders. One for, yes. I'll have an order for morphine five milligrams Q2 for PRN moderate pain, or another order, morphine 10 milligrams Q2 PRN severe pain. You mean going up, titrating up? He's got somebody on 300 milligrams a day of methadone. He's going up. He's a bold man, isn't he? I don't know. That makes me very nervous. I don't think I've ever done that. I mean, the guidelines, APS says no more than 10 milligrams a day, but that's like, you might as well give him Skittles at that point. Yeah. I don't know. That'd be hard to wager against oh, because you really want to make that. sure that you... Uh... That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. yeah, good question. Good point. So the so discontinuation of an inhibitor said, yeah. is important um, to know. And that is true because things sometimes, especially in our world, we're discontinuing medications quite often. Um, and when one of those things dropped off because they're no longer important for the goals of care, then that could really impact the methadone use. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Good point. So, Dr. Gurley, yeah. there's two points where watch it when you stop drugs, how it influences your methadone, and be very careful, particularly the first seven to ten days when you're starting methadone, because that's your biggest window of risk. Yeah. They're taking methadone for substance abuse recovery, you mean? Yeah. From a is clinic? Dr. Gourley going to bail us out here? Is that what I saw? I yeah. You, and you'd call the clinic, absolutely. I mean... Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I haven't had, uh, that hasn't happened a whole lot. Usually they're offering it saying, I'm on methadone and I go to this clinic because they don't want to go into withdrawal. So yeah. I haven't had a lot of experience with patients being deceptive about their um, methadone clinic, but I always call the clinic, absolutely, and connect with them. The, the man in the check shirt and then over here and then over here. No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. No. Nope. No. Nice way there. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's monitoring. Yeah, that's a monitoring place. Uh, up here? Yeah. He was just worried about yeah. the frequency of going to the pharmacy. They might think it was about that. And, you know, but not all states require four paint on the prescription, but some pharmacists don't know that and they get really hot and bothered about that. So, always good to do it. They have equivalent absorption. Mm -hmm. The tablets and the oral solution have close enough for government work, equal bioavailability. And also, should the liquid and the tablet be taken only on an empty stomach? Well, I don't think I've heard that. Mm -mm. Yeah, Underwear lay? Doesn't matter. Just to follow up on that comment, it's fine to say for pain, but if any reasonable care would interpret what you're doing as being maintenance or purposely addictive, I think you'd be in dodgy situations. So while it would be quite appropriate to monitor someone on Yeah. And I think it's always a good idea to loop in the community pharmacist. You know, pick up the phone and give them a call and say, here's the dealio. Yeah. We I'm have partner. like two or three minutes left. Good. I'll look up the dose. Good. So you can if you're persistent enough. Persistence. By the dose and the last dose. Yes. And how many take-home doses they get? Yeah, that's helpful. And when we have a patient who's coming into our hospice and they say, I'm too weak to go to my methadone clinic anymore, and we say, okay, fine, we'll take over now and we'll write for it for pain, be sure you tell the clinic. Mm -hmm. discharge them. So not that I don't trust people, but we don't want anybody double dipping. Yeah. So we have like two minutes left. So we're going to give our whole marijuana talk now in two minutes. <laughs> so I'll just give you my 10 cents worth on this. I think we deserve the chance to do research to find out best where to position medical cannabis. That's kind of my take on things. We have this, this question here. Um, I would prescribe or recommend cannabis for a patient with a disease or symptom or cannabis was shown to be helpful. Who says absolutely? Where do I sign? Oh, not many. Who says, maybe, I need more convincing? And, okay. and these people raise their hand halfway up. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe. who says, no way, Jose? Oh, Dr. Gillet's on the no way, Jose bandwagon. That's There's interesting. A couple no ways. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're in the U.S. We're in such a weird position with this. So, yeah. yes, Dr. Gillet. We are. Right. Uh, no never needed to treat. Yeah. I would raise my hand happily and have for many years on cannabinoids. 
Yes. Not a good idea. And yeah. I think points well taken. I mean, look how many active chemicals are in cannabis. So I, I do yes. think we need to tease this out and find, we need data on the vet. Like I know that I work with a hospice that's in 19 states and one of the nurses from Washington emailed me and said, okay, so how do I take care of a patient who's smoking you know, legalized cannabis for medical purposes? And I, I don't know anything about it. I don't know how, do, I, do they smoke it? Do they eat it? Do they put it in their ear? What do they do with it? What's the dose? What do I monitor? How do I protect myself when I go to their home and they're smoking? cannabis and I was like oh, that's a great question so yeah. now my resident is doing that it's her research project to develop an educational resource right but but he was saying that was kind of a broad question that we asked I've met people yeah. at this meeting who said, look, here's my uh, cannabidiol I'm using. It's revolutionized my life. I can walk again now. Some lady said, I couldn't use my hands because I have my rheumatoid arthritis. I'm using an oil, and oh my God, I could, it's awesome now. So. That's legal in every state. Mm -hmm. It's not legal in every state. Mm -mm. No. 25 states in D.C. 25 states in D.C. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't know the answer to that, how much the regulators are looking at international data. I mean, certainly they should. I wouldn't invalidate it. But I think um, Michael Schottman wrote a nice review in Painview, mm -hmm. looking at all these studies, like that big meta-analysis was just done recently. All those studies had such mixed um, methodology, and there were a lot of flaws in some of those studies. So it's hard to compare apples to apples. Yeah. So that can be difficult. Well, we are at our time, and I'm sorry we couldn't get through all I the know. cannabis slides, but thank you for being an awesome audience. <laughs> We knew we had a lot of fun after that.